If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open with me to 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter in chapter 1. We're going to look together at verses 1 and 2 in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to give a disclaimer today before we ever dive into the message because this is, maybe as you turn there, you're like, hey, I've never heard this passage preached on Easter morning before. And so I want to illustrate this with a joke. If you laugh at it, that's great. If you don't, I may be offended, but we'll get over it, okay? But, but listen, I'll illustrate it to you like this because I was explaining it this way to me this week, actually, leading into Easter. I was listening to some guys teach on, hey, what do you preach on Easter? And they said, make sure you preach about the resurrection. If nothing else, make sure you teach and preach the resurrection of Christ. And if you don't, it's kind of like this. It, you know, maybe you've went through a drive through window before and you've ordered a sweet tea. And you come to the window and they give you your drink and man, you're thirsty and you're ready for that big swig of sweet tea. And you take the drink and what is it? Unsweet tea, right? And there's this look of disgust on your face. You're like, what in the world have I gotten into? This isn't at all what I was expecting. And then you circle around the building and maybe you're angry by this point and you get your sweet tea, right? Well, listen, here's what's gonna happen this morning. You're coming to the window, it's gonna, you're gonna think you got some unsweet tea this morning, okay? I promise, we're gonna come all the way around the building, we're not gonna be mad about it, okay? And we're gonna get that sweet tea. We're gonna arrive at the, the glorious truth of the resurrection this morning, but we're starting a new sermon series this morning as well, which may be a bit unorthodox, maybe a bit crazy, but we're continuing to dive into God's word and endeavor to preach through God's word. And this morning we arrive at the wonderful letter of First Peter. Over the next six weeks, we're going to walk through this beautiful letter, and we're going to learn what it means to live as God's people in this strange world that we temporarily call home. No doubt we are citizens of another kingdom. This is not our home forever. You know, when you read a letter, it's really important that you understand who's writing the letter, right? You, you want to know who it's coming from for it to have meaning. Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to get to know Peter. We're going to meet him this morning. We're going to look at him at his best and at his worst, and all of this is going to inform the way that we're going to read this letter. And here's what's going to happen. At various points, we're going to kind of parachute into Peter's experience with Jesus from the beginning of when he's walking with the Lord and he confesses him as Messiah all the way up until he denies Jesus three times just before the crucifixion, and then we're going to see resurrection evening and what happens so again hold on tight we're gonna get there but we're gonna get to know Peter along the way and here's here's where I want to draw you in listen close we're gonna learn that he has been genuinely changed by Jesus we're gonna learn that he's been genuinely changed by Jesus but he wasn't just changed by Jesus and the life that he had lived or the things that he had taught or even the death that he had died. Friend, he had been changed because of the power of the resurrection of Christ. Peter never got over the re reality of the resurrected Christ. He never got over it. Throughout his ministry as an apostle, he never got over the fact that Jesus was in fact risen from the dead. But I believe, I believe that far too often, we have indeed gotten over this awesome display of God's power on that first Easter morning. 
And so today, I want to drive this truth into our hearts as we talk about what it means to have a new life. I want to drive this point home from the proclamation of God's word. Listen close. This will drive everything that we're talking about today. The resurrection of Christ gives us new life. The resurrection of Christ, it could say it this way, it should give us new life. We should be changed by the reality that Christ is indeed risen from the dead. It shouldn't just give us a smile on our faces on Easter morning as we compliment our special Easter outfits. It shouldn't just allow us to sing a new song with joy this morning and celebrate him today. I mean, it should give us new life. It should change us, not just for the temporary, but for eternity. With all that in mind, I invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's word in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. The word of God says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the awesome truth that you are indeed risen. Thank you for all that you accomplished for us on Calvary, what we could not do for ourselves, but thank you most of all. You did not remain in a grave, but instead you are risen. And because of that, we sing today. Because of that, we preach. And so God, I pray that as we encounter your word this morning, that we will drink deeply of the truth of your word that we'll be challenged, we'll be encouraged as you call us into new life. Bless the reading and the teaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. A new life. A new life. We should be changed. We should be changed by the resurrection of Christ. It should indeed give us new life. As we walk through these first two verses and as we look back at the life that Peter lived and how everything he experienced with Jesus leading up to and beyond the resurrection morning informed what he was writing here. And so we're going to see three realities that should be true in our lives if we indeed have a new life. And the first one is this. We are given a new identity. We are given a new identity. You know, Peter introduces himself in verse 1 in a subtle way in which we probably read over very quickly, but it's very profound. You see, this idea of a new identity, it was not a foreign concept to Peter. As we look back at Matthew chapter 16 and verses 13 through 18, listen to what happens in Peter's life. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Listen carefully to verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Listen, back in Matthew 16, everyone else that day, they saw a guy named Simon. They saw a guy with little to no potential. He was a simple fisherman following the son of a carpenter. But Jesus, friend, Jesus, he saw Peter. He looked beyond the stink of him as a fisherman, perhaps his gaudy appearance, and he saw Peter. He saw the one who would preach at Pentecost. He saw the one who would lead the church all throughout the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. We just looked at this a few weeks ago. Peter took his new name, his new identity that was given to him by Christ. He took it seriously. And so it's no wonder that at the beginning of this letter, although we read over it quickly, it's no wonder that he refers to himself not as Simon, no, but as his Jesus-given name. Peter, and as his Jesus-given occupation, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But I want you to see how we are then encouraged by Peter, how, again, all of this activity in his life, this change of identity, it continues to inform his ministry. It informs what we read even here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and the first two verses. And we learn this about our new identity. As we continue reading from verse 1, listen carefully. It says to those who are chosen and living as exiles who are dispersed abroad. And these places are mentioned and referenced all throughout Asia Minor, what would be modern day Turkey. And all these individuals, because the, the gospel had reached into these territories, the gospel had taken root and they were scattered about. But it says here that they were chosen. And then we read in verse 2, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God, they were chosen. And so we see this, our new identity, as we begin to turn our attention to how this informs our lives, it comes by God's election or his choice. Our new identity, friends, it comes by God's election and by his choice. Now, I know these are some big theological buzzwords. I understand that when we talk about predestination, we talk about God's foreknowledge, we talk about election, I understand those are packed and loaded with meaning, and there's a diverse amount of opinions about these things. But listen, regardless of how you feel about election or predestination or God's foreknowledge, we cannot dispute this. God chose us. It is very clear and evident in God's word. We cannot dispute that. This word foreknowledge, it's used only a few other times in Scripture in reference to Christians. And every time it communicates the very same idea, and it is this. God does not simply know you as a person. He doesn't just know you as a person. He doesn't just know how many hairs are on your head. He doesn't just know your family heritage. He doesn't just know the job that you work. No, God's knowledge is not limited to that, friend. God knows you, and he has chosen you to be his. This means that God's redeeming work in your life, it is not based upon what you might bring to the table. It's not based upon your merit. It's not based upon your status or your failure, or even your past sin. It is based solely upon God's goodness and his desire to know you and to have a relationship with you. We cannot get this wrong. 
because of that, not only has he chosen us to give us this new identity, not only has he foreknown this event, and if you're a child of God, understand you've brought nothing to the table in relation to having a relationship with God. But it doesn't just stop there. As you get to verse 2 and you get to the end of that verse, there's this, this talk about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we learn this, our new identity, it comes by God's activity. Our new identity comes by his activity alone. The picture painted for us, particularly as we get to the end of verse 2, it points to the work of Christ at Calvary. Now, of course, if you look back into the Old Testament, you'll see that the children of Israel over and over again, they're making sacrifices on an altar. They're coming and they, they sprinkle the blood of the animals they have sacrificed to a holy God to appease his wrath and to make right relationship between them and God. But what we find here is God does this work for us. It's not something we do on our own. No, Jesus went to the cross of Calvary for you and for me. He did this by his initiative. Perhaps through my passion for this, you've maybe lost the real significance. So let me illustrate this for you in a way that will certainly make sense. The gift and the blessing of adoption paints such a, a beautiful picture of not just God's foreknowledge, but God's choosing of us and God's activity to bring us into his family. My family, you all know, have, we've been blessed by the wonderful gift of adoption. And I remember when we, we went into the hospital room, we saw Evie and Ivy for the first time. And, and they were laying there in their bassinets, and they were in the intensive care unit. They had been born prematurely, and they had also been born predisposed to methamphetamines. It was a heartbreaking picture that we saw the very first time we interacted with them. We saw them as they were working through withdrawals, and it was not a pretty picture. It's something I'll never forget. And I remember answering questions from, from coworkers and the like and them saying, now wait a minute, you want to adopt them. You want them to be your daughters and, and you have your heart set on this. Don't you understand the complications perhaps? Don't you understand that, that, that there may be some, some mental deficiencies or emotional or physical setbacks later on? Why in the world would you ever choose such a life? You don't know what's going to happen and no, we didn't, but here's what we did know. We chose them. We chose them. Not because they brought anything else to the table. We chose them because we loved them. All they brought to the table later on were a lot of stinky diapers in a really messy room. And had we known that, we still would have chosen them. And listen, friend, that's what God does for you. When we look through this passage and, and Peter is reminiscing back to when he's given a new name and a new identity, Jesus chose him and God has chosen you. Listen, you sitting under the proclamation of God's word, whether it be in this room or online or later on, you're listening to it. Listen, you sitting under this teaching, God has chosen for this moment to happen. So don't take it lightly. Listen carefully. By his initiative, he has chosen to lavish his grace and love on you, friend. And so we're given a new identity because of the resurrection. But notice this as we look closer. The second truth, we are also given a new beginning. We are given a new beginning. Notice what Peter writes in verse 2 as we look a little bit further. It says there, it says that according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of 
the Spirit. Now, this big Bible word, sanctification, I don't know about you, when you find the big words, you just read past them, right? You're like, whoa, too much for me, right? I don't want to pull out a dictionary and look this up. But listen, sanctification is so incredibly important to what Peter is conveying right here. Let me define it for you. Maybe not real simply, I'll get to that, but let me define it kind of in in big terms for a second. Sanctification is the ongoing activity of God in our lives through His grace as we are made into His image. I'll say that again. Sanctification is the ongoing activity of God in our lives through His grace as we are made into His image. Very simply, it's this. It means that God is constantly at work in us to make us into who he desires for us to be. God is constantly at work in us. That's what sanctification is. He's working in you and on you to shape you into who he desires for you to be. And if this is not true, has your identity truly ever been changed by Jesus? If you can persistently live in sin and walk away from him over and over again, has your identity truly been changed by Jesus? I remember singing a song as a kid. Maybe you do as well in Sunday school. He's still working on me to make me who I ought to be. It took him just a week to make this moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. But guess what? He's still working on me. That's the profound truth of sanctification. That is what God is doing here. That's what he's referring to. But I want you, again, we're going to parachute back into Peter's journey with Jesus. And I want you to see as we near the time of the crucifixion, as we near the time of the cross, I want you to see how God is working in his life. Look with me at John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We get down to verse 15. Jesus is, is awaiting trial, okay? Jesus is awaiting trial. And Jesus, just hours before perhaps, has, has told his disciples, he's told Peter even, listen, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And he tells him, this is going to happen. Peter resists. There's no way. Not me, Lord. I'll never do that. Peter always putting his foot in his mouth. But listen, look what happens in verse 15. It says, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, he he went out and he spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. I love how it's this unsuspecting servant girl watching the door that accuses Peter first. It's great. It says in verse 17, it says, Then the servant girl, who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I'm not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them warming himself. And then we look a little bit further. You get down to verse 25. It says, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, the same place we left him before. And they said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, and he said, I'm I'm not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And Peter denied it again. Immediately a rooster crowed. Did you see what happened? If there was ever a person who knew the sanctifying work of Christ in his life, it was Peter He, over and over again, he had wrongly spoken. He denied even knowing Jesus moments before his crucifixion here. He needed 
Jesus to do the sanctifying work of grace in his life. But here's what's so wonderful. As you get over to John chapter 21, Jesus has been crucified and he has also risen from the dead. And guess what he does? He turns his affections. As you get down to verse 15, he turns his affection and his attention to who? He turns it to Peter. And three times he asks Peter, do you love me? And after he answers three times, of course, Jesus, I love you. Jesus gives him the occupation. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus never gave up on Peter over and over again, continuing to set him on the right path. Listen, there's no doubt that God had been hard at work in giving Peter a new direction and a new beginning. This was Peter after all. This was the guy who was a part of Jesus's inner circle of followers. He had seen him walk on water, heal the blind, raise the dead, and yet just hours before his crucifixion, he denied the name of the one who had given him a new name. But then, God is so good to Peter. We saw him doing this work of sanctification in chapter 21. And so I ask you, if Peter needed this work of sanctification in his life, this is the great apostle who would preach it at Pentecost. If he needed it, don't we? Don't we? Don't we need to recognize the truth this morning that we need him to always be at work on us? Every person here has been in need of a new beginning in Christ. Perhaps it's today. And so when we read this big Bible word in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, this word sanctification, don't fail to understand the weightiness with which Peter penned these words. Don't forget, once again, that, that you bring nothing to the table that is of worth to God. Every single day, you and I, we stand in need of this same redeeming grace that Peter had experienced. We need God by his initiative to meet us in our brokenness, in our failure, and our regret, and to give us a new beginning. So we see that we're given a new life, and because we have a new life, we have a new identity. And because we have a new life, we have a new beginning that every person in this room stands in need of. But that's not where it stops. Notice this final truth. We are also given a new peace. We are given a new peace. Look at how Peter closes out this introduction. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It seems like a very simple and ordinary blessing. It seems like just something customary for Peter to say, but these were not empty words. Let me prove this to you. Again, I told you we're going to go around the building, right? We've got unsweet tea to this point, maybe. I hope you've enjoyed this, but you got unsweet tea. We're going around the building. We're going to get sweet tea now, okay? Listen, go back to John chapter, um, John chapter 18. Excuse me, I'm sorry. John chapter 20. Sorry, John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and verse 19, I really want you to turn there with me. I hear pages turning. I want everybody to get there. John chapter 20 and verse 19. This is so incredibly powerful. Again, hold on to this. When Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you, these are not empty words. All along, I've, this has been proven, right? Over and over again, as Peter's writing these words, they mean something. They mean something because he's experienced these things. They mean something because he has indeed been changed by Jesus. But I want you to see how he's most of all changed by the resurrection and how this gives him a new peace. Notice what we find in verse 19 of John chapter 20. When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared 
the Jews. I want to stop there. Let me paint the picture for you. I know we, we, we always think of Easter, we talk about Easter morning being that significant moment. And yes, that is when the tomb is first discovered as being empty. That's why at 7 o'clock this morning, it was really cold, but we were out there in the park, right, hanging out together. We're celebrating an Easter sunrise service because that's when the tomb is discovered to be empty, and we celebrate that. But this is Easter evening, Easter evening, and the, the, the disciples still have not gotten the picture yet. It's still maybe not been explained to them clearly what has taken place. And so they're gathered in an upper room and they are terrified of what may be taking place in their lives. They don't know what's coming next. The doors are locked because they're afraid. And I want you to understand this. We're only told as you get down to verse 24 that one disciple was absent aside from Judas. It was Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. So guess who was there? We can take this as a given. Peter. Peter was there. He was gathered in this room with them. And he was afraid. But notice what happens. Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. Did you catch that? That's so good. Peter writes later on, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Why? Because Jesus greets him and the other disciples that evening. He says, peace be to you. Don't be afraid. Then he says in verse 20, having said this, he, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, as if they didn't get it, this is so important. Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Listen, these are not empty words from Peter. When he says a new peace and new grace multiplied to you, listen, these are not empty words he knew these people scattered these believers under persecution we'll soon learn in the coming weeks these people that are facing hostility and difficulty they needed to hear about God's peace and grace and Peter man how much he had changed he went from denying Jesus three times just hours before his crucifixion to huddled in a room afraid for his life with the other disciples and then Jesus enters and says peace be to you and it sent, it sent Peter's life on a new direction. He had a new identity, right? He had a new identity, and, and he, he had a new beginning over and over again, God working in his life. And now he has this newfound peace, and he can go forward in his calling. So it's no wonder, friend, that Peter reminds his readers once again that the peace of God is real. The resurrection should give us new life. It should give us new life, it should give us a new identity, a new beginning, and a new peace. Surely, in a room this size, one of these has been a pressing need in your life. In every person in this room, one of these, at least, has really resonated this morning. Maybe you, you need that new identity. You've never known Jesus as your Savior. And today, for the first time, you heard the truth. Listen, he loves me and he's chosen me. He set his affection on me so much that he has done activity in my life that I could not do for myself so that I can be saved. And so you need a new identity, friend. Listen, there's, I was going to do this at the very end, but I'm going to do it now. It's appropriate. Listen, there's a blue card in the back of that pew right in front of you. I don't do this. This is like the first time I've ever done this, I think, here. But listen, on that card, there's a little box that says, you know, you fill out everything at the top on the box that says, I want to give my life to Jesus. Listen, putting some ink to a page right there doesn't make you saved, okay? But here's what it does do. You put a number on there, an email address, you put your name. It lets me know that I need to reach out to you. 
And I want to walk with you through what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to walk you through God's word and show you how you can have this new identity. Surely in a room this size, that is true for at least one person. It is foolish to believe that every person in this room knows Jesus as their Savior. That's not true. Someone needs to know Jesus and needs to have this new identity. Maybe this morning, you come into this place on Easter morning. Maybe it's your first time back since before the pandemic and you're here and and you're carrying a weight and a burden that has become so pressing and you need a new beginning. The same new beginning that was offered to Peter over and over again because of the reality and the truth of the resurrection and that new beginning can be real in your life. But finally, I can think of no more appropriate charge to give everyone in this room than this. In light of everything we've experienced as a culture, as a church, as a family perhaps, listen, we need the peace of God. We need it. That's why we're going to walk through 1 Peter. That's why we're talking about being exiles and living in a strange land just like the audience who's reading this letter has experienced. This is so true for where we are at. And so I want you this morning to just simply pray and ask God to give you this peace. Go back with me and place yourself in the shoes of those other disciples. Maybe you're there with them. It's resurrection evening. You're scared for your life. You don't know what's going on around you. There's this this strange world that you've woken up in on Easter morning. So many uncertainties. And then Jesus comes and stands in the room with you. And he says these simple words, peace be unto you. Friend, I hope that today will be a day of new life for you. I hope that you will reach out and let us know what you're walking through. We want to pray for you. We want to walk with you through this. Even if it's, maybe it's the first time you've been here in a long time. I want to get to know you. I want to meet you right where you're at. I'm going to show you in God's word how how God speaks into your reality. He speaks into your need for peace. He speaks into your need for a new life. So let us know. Let us know how God's working in your life. We'd love to walk with you through that. In the meantime, know that I'll be praying just like I'm going to pray in just a moment, that God would continue to move, that he would continue to bless the proclamation of his word, and that as his word goes out, it will not return void.